This is a recording of a Bible study given at the Chapel of the Opened Book under the covering title Deeply Roma and is number nine of the series. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of Scripture together. If those of you who are using this recording care to join us, will you please switch off for a little while and read with us 2 Peter chapter 2. That is a very dreadful chapter. It doesn't minimize either the evil or the Lord's attitude to it. And I think you would be wise if you noticed the ending of this chapter where the Apostle says, Now it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, and turned to the first epistle, And in the second chapter, it says at verse 25, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Do you notice? He looks upon all people as either sheep or sows, and they both return. And the sheep return at last to the shepherd, and the sow returns at last to the mire. And as far as I can interpret the mind and will of God, there is not the slightest justification to say that the gospel is preached to turn sows into sheep. The gospel is preached to bring lost sheep back again. Now that's a fundamental difference from the point of view of some. But I remember that the scripture all the way through is warning you that the devil has his seed in this earth. They are there in Peter. They're going to be before us in the book of Genesis. And even though it's hard doctrine, if it's written and if it's true, none of our objections will ever alter it. But if we run against it, we may be found misrepresenting God and his purpose. Of course that sounds, I know, from anyone speaking, very unfeeling. Believe me, it isn't. If I could have my wishes, I would alter the Bible. Perhaps you would. But what a mess we'd make of it at the finish, wouldn't we? At long last, not one of us can challenge God. We have tested him enough to know that he is a God of love. But he's a God of righteousness. And holiness is a vehement flame. And whoever comes into contact with it must perish unless they're protected. Well now we're going to turn back to the book of Genesis to see another phase of the outworking of God's purpose. The counter moves that are made by the evil one and the way in which the Lord takes the purpose of God another stage. After Paradise Lost, which we more or less use as when we're summing up Genesis 3, the story splits into two. Chapter 1 ends with the genealogy or pedigree of the descendants of Cain. The first child is called Enoch and a city is built. And then we get the names which are very reminiscent of the next group. We get Methusael and we get Lamech. There was an Enoch and a Methuselah and Lamech in the other set. And we've already mentioned before that Satan is always seeking to parody and copy and forestall 
Whatever God does, he does something as a counter-move. So we've got to watch that we're not really tripped up by like-sounding terms. It's not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, is necessarily a believer. And we are told in 2 Corinthians that some preach another gospel, and some preach another Jesus. Fancy. Even the word Jesus will be used, and it won't refer to the one that we believe. So we've got this to warn us. And Lamech ends up by boasting that if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and seven. And then when you come to Lamech in chapter 5, you read that he lived 777 years, verse 31. Even the number of his years makes you think of the man who said seven times and seventy times seven. It's all there, if you'll just take the hint. Armour of God, our sure defence against the devil's cunning snare, is to put on that armour and realise that it's been provided for our protection. Well now, in Genesis um, 1, verse 2, we have the word deep. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Tihom. There is a possibility that Tihom finds an echo in the Assyrian mythology. Because in the Assyrian mythology, there's a witch which is called Tiamat. It's only an ending on the end. And the strange thing about it in the creation tablets and the flood tablets that you'll find in the British Museum, it says that Merodach, who is the god of the Assyrian uh, idolatry and worship, Merodach was in conflict with this witch and he split her in two like a flat fish and with one half he made the heavens and the other half he made the earth. Where they get such an idea? A fantastic distortion of Genesis. There's the deep, Tihon. And then there's, God said, let there be light. And then there's the waters above the firmament and the waters beneath. There are little bits like that that you'll discover. I was only reading a portion about, a bit to, to do with ancient Egypt while I was away at Dracot. And there it says, there were four sons of one of these gods. Or four children, three sons and one daughter. And one of them, Geb, is the lying flat on the ground, that's the earth. Then the two brothers, they sustain their sister above them. They are the atmosphere holding up the heavens. And then when twilight comes, the this one comes down to rest with her husband on the earth. Next morning up she goes again. They say, what a fantastic idea. Genesis again. The firmament. You see, you'll find it scattered about. So, while we don't get our theology from mythology and demon worship, we can see a great deal of broken fragments of truth scattered about in these. And you know, the flood has permeated practically the religion of every nation on the earth. And there's very, very much that is parallel in the record of the Babylonian story. If you ever go to the British Museum and read the description of it, you'll be impressed. Well now, the first occurrence of the word Tihon, or deep, is Genesis 1 verse 2. It doesn't occur again until you get to chapter 7, verse 11. So, shall we look at that? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep 
broken up. That's exactly the same word. That's the next occurrence. I'm suggesting that that's not accidental. It's just come in its right place. Well now, what about the passage which says in Genesis 1 verses 9 and 10, let the dry land appear. That word, Yabasha, Y-A-B-B-A-S-H-A-H, Yabasha, is found in chapter 8, verse 7, for the first time. That's the next occurrence. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And again in verse 14. And the second month on the seventh and twentieth day of the month was the earth dried. So you see we've got behind Adam a deep and then the drying of the land. Behind Noah we have a deep, the flood, and a drying of the land. Now that's suggestive. And the suggestion is this. Adam was only a picture and a shadow of him that was to come. And we know by 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is also called Adam. We have a difference suggested between the first man and the last man. The first Adam and the last Adam. The second man and the last Adam is Christ. Well now it wasn't time Yet, when we get to the days of Noah, it wasn't yet time for Christ to come. We are told that in the fullness of time, he was born and came into this world. Not a moment too early, not a moment too late. It's one of the things that we do well to remember, that God always keeps his timetable. He always keeps his program. And if all the world united to have all night prayer meetings, to ask him to change his mind, he wouldn't do it, thank God. Although you may be agonising in prayer, and he wants you to be, like Habakkuk, distressed because of all the iniquity around him, no answer to prayer and no intervention. Yet Habakkuk learned a lesson that's passed on to you and me. Instead of vexing his soul at last, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll stand upon my watchtower and I'll wait to hear what he will say. How wise. And then the silence was broken. And God said, the vision is yet for an appointed time. Though it tarry, wait for it, for it will not tarry. That's two points of view. From your point of view, he's never going to do it. From God's point of view, I will when the moment comes. And meanwhile, he said, meanwhile, the just shall live by his faith. That's what he expects you to do if you're a believer. If you cannot see, you can still trust because you know. Isn't that a worthwhile thought? That comes to home to us, to this very moment. We're in the same predicament so many, many times. Well, now to come back to this book of Genesis. Again, the evil one makes his move. It says in chapter 6, and it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took their wives of all that they chose. Now some have interpreted this to mean that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men are the other lot. 
But in as much as the word man, all the way through this passage is the word Adam. The sons of Seth were the sons of Adam, just the same as the rest. Now, you see, the argument is this, that the godly people, the sons of God, married some of the ungodly women, and as a consequence, their children were giants. Well, you say, ah, oh, but it can't mean giants, as we mean. Say, no. Well, you ask the children of Israel what they thought when they went to the land of Canaan. They said, oh, we saw the giants, the sons of Adat there. They terrified us. Did they mean what they said? They said, oh, yes, they were, they were head and shoulders above us. We felt like grasshoppers in their presence. Or ask young David whether it was an illusion when he went out to see this great strutting Goliath. Oh, you can't get away from him. The scripture won't allow you to merely spiritualize them. We, 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 might, we might say that if you have a, a mixed marriage, you may get rather peculiar temperaments among the family, but there's no idea that because godly men happen to marry ungodly women, that all the children are going to be giants and men of renown and so on. That doesn't follow. doesn't make it fit. Then again, if you go through the Old Testament and discover the references to the term Son of God, you'll not find it ever used of a man in the sense that uh, we find it in the New Testament of the believer. Let Nebuchadnezzar give you a little hint, although we don't take our theology from him. He said, look, the fire's alight. We put three men in there. And I see four. And the fourth one is like unto a son of God. Then when he explains himself afterwards, he says, God has sent his angel. So if you ask Nebuchadnezzar what he meant by a son of God, he said, well, anybody knows that means an angel. Let's ask Job. God suddenly broke into all the talk that had been going on and challenged Job and said, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Poor Job, of course, he had to say no. Good thing if some scientists were brought face to face with that once now and again, wouldn't it? When they're putting forward all their ideas. If God should suddenly confront them and say, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? But that's not my point. He goes on to say, when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, was there any children of men then? That doesn't seem humanly possible. Well, then we let antiquity speak. It may not be true, but nevertheless, it's just as much uh, right for us to listen to what somebody said 2,000 years ago as to listen to me, isn't it? Well, the Septuagint translators who knew their own language and knew something of its meaning, they don't put the word sons of God in Genesis 6. They put angels. They straight away retranslate it to angels. Well, now, here comes the difficulty. How is it possible for angels to marry and have children? Because, can't you trip me up over this and say, you can't be because, you see, those who attain the resurrection, they are like the angels of God who neither marry nor give any marriage. Oh, good, I've beaten, aren't I? But I also remember this, that Jude says the angels, they left their first estate. Now, that word first estate is the word oikiterion. And if you'll turn to its occurrence in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll find that that oikiterion is the very resurrection body that God has prepared for his people. 
So they left the body that belonged to their own sphere. And they took on another one. Have you never seen in the New Testament that men could be possessed of demons? Have you never read in the Old Testament that angels came and sat down with Abraham and had a meal? That they looked exactly like men and could eat and drink exactly like men? If angels can take possession of a human body, there's your answer. There's no, there's no idea to fabricate difficulties. God has assured us that this was a satanic move to bring into the earth the cares. It's, it's put in parable form in the New Testament, just as surely as God sowed his seed, so the devil sowed his. And when the interpretation is given, Christ doesn't say the sowing of the seed is the spreading of the gospel. He said they are the children of the kingdom, or the children of the wicked one. And later on, Cain is definitely said, in the very context that we're reading in the epistle of Jude, that Cain was of the, the, in the epistle of John, that Cain was of that wicked one. So you see, there's much to make us pause, and realise that there's a marshalling of forces. Here's the seed on this side, and we've already drawn attention to the primitive prophecy of Genesis 3, out of which all prophecy springs, and the whole of prophecy springs out of a statement that I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. That's what God says. And you'll get it right through to the book of the Revelation. And the very seed of the woman is mentioned in the book of the Revelation, and the serpents after them. End of chapter 12. Well now, here we have then a terrific proposition. What was the consequence of this invasion into human life? The, conse- the consequence was corruption. It says in verse 5 of chapter 6, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now here's an extraordinary statement, friends. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth. And if you don't like the word repented, it says, and it grieved him at his heart. Now you say, ah, but they're figures of speech. I see. Figures of speech then contradict what is true. Is that the idea? No. They emphasize what is true. A figure of speech never is used to belittle something. It's only to intensify it. So it uses human terms to tell you what effect this had upon God. You may say, from a theoretical argument, that God never repents, and God cannot be grieved, that he sits above and beyond it all. All that may be so. But when I read that God spare not his only son, am I going to say, but of course he had no feeling about it, didn't make any difference to him, dare I say that? So we have a statement here, that something had come into God's universe once more, Something will come into his creation so that, if I may use the word reverently, he wished he'd never done it. It grieved him at his heart and he repented that he made man. Now, I haven't written those words. You may challenge my interpretation, but if I'm all at sea over it, you've still got to face the fact that that's written and is a part of Holy Writ. All right, we come on then. What did the Lord say as a consequence? I will destroy man whom I have created 
from the face of the earth. Both man and beast and creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And if there hadn't been a but following this, that's the end of the story. But the purpose of God very often hinges upon a very slender thread of all this great number that are visualized here. One man, one man was used by God to save the situation. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Again, you'll get children of Israel in Egypt. And the word had gone out that every one of the man-child born should be destroyed. And the princess and the royal house of Egypt, who knew all about that, went down for the ablution in the river. And she saw a little basket. And she sent her maid. And they said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Now, whether she would ever have said, well, pitch it back again, my father says so, I don't know. But before ever she could say anything, the babe wept. And God used the tear of a little child to save Israel. And that little child was Moses. You see, God is doing this on purpose to show you the devil may do his best. He may practically win the whole world with one little exception. And God says, that's my move. My, I'm still continuing this game of chess, friends. Think of the advantage that the devil seemed to have got now. He nearly wiped the board. One move. Stopped him. Noah. Now, this man Noah was the subject of consideration in chapter 5. Will you look back? <laughs> Enoch, who walked with God, had a son named Methuselah. And the meaning of the word Methuselah is, at his death, it shall be. Now you say, what? Well, you may not have known in those days. Because Methuselah lived 939 years afterwards, or 900 and more than that. So nobody could have, at first have guessed what was coming, except perhaps Enoch had got an indication. But he named his child a peculiar name. At his death, it shall be. And the very year that Methuselah died, the flood came. So you see, it was foreknown by God. And then again, Lamech, verse 28. He called his, the, the son that he had, he called his name Noah. The same shall comfort us. The word Noah means rest or comfort. Both words. He gave him that name. And he gave it for a reason. Shall comfort us as concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now you see, he's put that all out. This man, this child, this Noah, is going to be at least in type and picture the one who delivers. Not merely from disaster, not merely from flood, but from the curse that's there and all the wearisome toil that's coming. And on top of that, there's another reason. Because in the other line of teaching, the other man named Enoch, who's, who's the son of Cain, his descendants, instead of saying, well, we'll wait for God to provide a means of escape 
They started inventing them. They started doing all sorts of things to prevent their descendants from feeling the curse so badly. If you and I were living in more primitive times, friends, we know more truly there was a curse on the earth. But by the time we get our electric blankets and by the time we get it all done by the inventions that men have done, oh, they're very wonderful and they're very fine. They take the edge off. I wonder how many of us who've never been out of this country, there's one or two here who have, who've never been out of this country, could find your way home by the stars. Which one would you follow? Which one would you look at? How would you go about it? You see, we're robbed of all that because we live such a highly civilised life. So we have in the line of Cain civilization developing. The arts, music, and all those various things which we prize so much. They're only laying veneers over to say you needn't feel the curse so much. You needn't feel so need of, so need of Christ so much. But Lavec said no, 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 not for me, not the other Lavec. I'm going to see that this son of mine, in type at least, is going to show me the way in which this deliverance shall come. So should we look a bit further? Verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. So he was a, a very much like Enoch. He walked with God. You imagine a man with practically the whole world round him going down into such an iniquity that God said he would destroy the lot, fancy that man having sufficient grace to walk with God. And then we say, you know, a good many people are against me. Oh dear, oh dear. We, can't, we can hardly think of it, can we? When we compare ourselves. <coughs> now it says, he was perfect. Perfect. What does it mean by perfect? It means uncontaminated. He was not touched with this dreadful pollution that had come in. He doesn't say he was perfect in his morals and that he never committed a sin. He was perfect with regard to his generations. There's another man coming into the story in Genesis. He had a brother named Esau. And Esau is, is described in one way and Jacob is described as being a plain man. But that's nonsense, that's not true, that's robbing us. It's the identical word we have here. Now you wouldn't think Jacob was a perfect man, would you? Because of the way in which he distorted and twisted and schemed and planned. But then finally he emerged as the Israel of God, the prince. He came through it. And he was the perfect one and Esau wasn't. Again, the line is divided. And when you come to the book of Job, Job was upright and perfect. Two things. And Job was one of the true seed. And Satan says, yes, let me have him and see what I'll do with him. There's your enmity of the true seeds, as I've told you. The word Job is the very word enmity in Genesis 3.15. Oh, it's here. The battle's on. Now God is going to show us how he is going to deliver his people, at least in time. <coughs> And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we're not sure about these sons. We're not sure. We don't know. But we have this hint 
that presently Ham is going to be the medium through which evil comes into the whole thing all over again. For Ham was the father of Canaan and the Canaanites were there waiting for Abraham and had to be uh, expelled. Or they will be ultimately. So at the bottom of this chart, if you'll notice, I've just given you an indication of a little feature which we must be very watchful we don't use or abuse. But inasmuch as in the Bible there are no figures, if you wanted to add up figures, you'd have to add up letters so that you would put down A for one and B for two and you'd add them up and say A and B make three. So that if you say, what's the numerical value of the Hebrew word Abba, Father? Well, you say one and two and two and one, six. Quite correct. The numerical value of Abba, Father, is six. So that every word in the Hebrew or Greek language has got a numerical value, whether it's of any importance or not, it doesn't matter. It can't help itself. But there are some features which are a bit more than accident. Now, if you put down the numerical value of Noah, right at the very bottom, it's 58. And if you put down the numerical value of Ham, it's 608. And that comes to the ominous figure of 666. Well, now you say, oh, well, that's accident. But then when you come to the other side, and you put down Noah again, which is 58, and Shem, which is 340, and Japheth, which is 490, we get 888. Well, that's obvious that one balances the other. 666 is a number that refers to the ultimate evil in the book of the Revelation. And 888 is the numerical value of the name of Jesus in the New Testament. And 8 is always the octave, the first day of the week, a fresh start. That's what Noah's supposed to be doing. He's a fresh start in a new world after the deluge, but we haven't got there yet. Now it says in verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth, or from the earth. Make an ark. That's God's answer. Make an ark. Later on, when Moses comes down from the mountain, with the tables of stone in his hand, before he could even give them to Israel, they broke them. And Moses broke them to pieces. Then God said, come up, I'll give you another tables of stone. Make an ark. Put them in the ark. Don't give them to Israel. And so God's answer again here, make an ark. And that ark is a representation of redemptive purpose. That's the only possible way in which this can be, the purpose of God can be achieved and his people saved. Make me an ark. Now there are two words for ark in the Old Testament. But there's only one word for ark in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Noah's ark is exactly the same word as the ark that was put into the tabernacle. So we know that you could have used the same two words, same word in the Old Testament. You could have had the word here for the ark which Noah built, which is exactly the same as the word used in Exodus, but it isn't. Now why was it altered? Well, I'm only guessing, but my guess may be as good as yours, and that is this. 
I think we've got here just a little mother love creeping in. You say, where do you get that from? Well, wait a minute, friends. Moses himself was saved because he was put in an ark made of bulrushes and covered with bitch, uh, bitumen. Wasn't he? One little life was saved in one little ark. And when he came to write this story, he used the word that was used in Egypt. A word that may not have been in existence when Noah lived, for there are no Egyptians at the moment to talk to him. They came later. They don't come till they get Genesis 10. But Moses called it the same name as his mother called it when she was in Egypt and put him in it. I, I rather think that's a very nice little feeling, don't you? That it comes in. Well, here we have the ark. And it's made of gopher wood. And nobody quite knows what the gopher wood is. Except that we guess it was a wood that would stand against strain, stress and water. Room or nests shalt thou make in the ark and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Now this word pitch gives us the word kofa. And it's the first occurrence of the word in the Old Testament which is translated later on by the word atonement. So, you say, what, what did Noah put the pitch on the ark for, inside and out? Well, certainly not to beautify it. It was done for a purpose, wasn't it? It was done just to keep out the element of destruction. And why the atonement? Why have an ark in the tabernacle of glorious, gleaming gold and then always have it stained for a whole year with sprinkled blood? Why? To make it beautiful? No. Because that was to keep out the threatened death. So we have the first picture of redemption and the way of salvation in this form. But it had a parallel in the Garden of Eden. You remember that when our parents were first challenged by God, they hid themselves. They had covered themselves as far as they could with sowing fig leaves together. God stripped them off. But he didn't leave them naked. He, God himself, provided them with coats made of skin. And the inference is you can't get skin off of trees. They were provided with a covering only at the cost of sacrifice. That's in the garden. So here, the very word chosen. This word changed its significance as time went on. What was just the ordinary, common, everyday word for pitch? After the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages, when Jacob uses it for the next time in the record, it's to placate his brother Esau. Now, is anybody going to say, oh, no, no, no. If the word means pitch in Genesis 6, it must mean pitch when Jacob used it. So you translate literally that he saw his brother Esau was coming and he knew that he'd been acting very badly with Esau and feared what Esau might do, so he smothered Esau's face with pitch. You're going to put that? 
He said, I will placate, I will appease my, my brother's face. So now we've got the next meaning of the word, and that's the consistent meaning of the word afterwards in the whole of the Old Testament. It is an appeasement. It is something which turns wrath away that's deserved. And that only could be done by the sacrifice of Christ. Well now, you know how the start story continues. The various animals are brought into the ark. Then of course some people want to know how they began, how they housed all the great animals like the elephants and hippopotamus and rhinoceros. And of course they all reckon Noah was fool enough to take the biggest elephants he could find into the ark. They never thought to themselves when well, he could just as well take baby ones, I suppose. But that, that is not for us. And then of course, if you try to count up all the possible animals there are, and all the various things, you could make such a mountain out of it that it becomes impossible. But then science comes to your rescue and tells you that all the dogs there ever are in the great cross show, from the tiny little pug nose to the great Danes and so on, they all come from the same stock originally, by breeding and interbreeding. So if Noah just put a couple in, he'd get the lot again. So don't let's magnify these problems. Yet there it is. And friends, anyone who has a dig at Noah's ark touches Christ. The same as those who laugh at Jonah, they touch Christ. But he stood by Jonah under three days, and he stood by Noah's ark, as you know in his own testimony in Matthew 24. And Peter has spoken about Noah. And did you remember in the chapter you read, it speaks about eight souls and eight, the eighth person. In one epistle, it says there were eight souls saved, and the other epistle it says Noah was the eighth person. I wonder if Peter had, had also seen that Noah added up like this with his sons to 888. Well, it doesn't matter whether he did or not. The Lord who inspired him did. Eight is stamped upon Noah. And I'm getting at this all this time, that he is a second man. It's starting all over again with him, but we haven't got quite there where we shall see it. Well now, they're in the ark. Look at verse 16 of chapter 7. And they went in, and they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Two titles. You see, God commanded, and the animals were included. And the Lord shut him in, because he was the Lord, the Redeemer, the Saviour's name. You know, it's in chapter 1 of Genesis, and God created, and God said, it's God all the way down, till you get to Genesis 2. Then the Lord God spoke to Adam. The Lord God spoke. The Lord God provided. So there's a, a reason to watch titles. And then, the dreadful thing takes place. Then it says in chapter 8, And God remembered Noah, and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. And the fountains also of the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually, after the end of a hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, 
upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, why should that be recorded? I mean, if it had said that all those years ago, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, you may say, well, that's all we need to know. What does it matter to us whether it was the 17th day or the 16th day? Why should that be put in? Do you know? Let's see. This was on what? The seventh month. Now come with me to the, t- the moment when Israel are going to come out of Egypt and the Passover is about to be offered. And Moses said unto them, this month is the beginning of months to you. It's the first of the year. What month was that? April. When did their year commence? October. October, November, December, January, February, March, April. Don't you see what he did? He shifted the year along. So, the seventh month becomes the first month. Right? Alright. The Passover is the 14th day of the month, isn't it? Yes. Three days. 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th. The 17th day of the month when Christ rose from the dead is the identical date when the flood ceased and the ark stopped. Is it accidental? Isn't that the reason why Moses has gone out of his way to tell us a date that from the first point of view leaves us to say, well, we, you, can, you can imagine some people saying, well, so what? What's it matter what date it was as long as it happened? It does. There's purpose in this. It's written for our learning. Well, do you remember how they tested it? First of all, a raven was sent out. He never came back. Do you know why? Well, a raven is one of the unclean birds. And it found such a lot of carrion to live on, it didn't come back anymore. Got all it needed. But the dove was sent out. And at first it found no rest for the sole of its foot. It got, it, a dove doesn't feed on dead carcasses floating in water. Came back again. And then he sent it out the second time. And the next time it came back with an olive leaf flapped off. Fine little old dove. It, didn't go, it came back again and brought an olive leaf. I wonder who told it to do that. I wonder who said to the dove, do you know an olive leaf is a sort of a symbol and Noah will be glad when you get it? No, of course you don't. But the Lord saw to it, didn't he? So, I've looked at some people and listened to them. And you can divide people up as sheep and goats and you can divide them up into wheat and tares and you can divide them up into ravens and doves, friends. Give them the Bible and one of them is gloating over some bit that he reads out to his chums and says, here, this is in the Bible, would you believe it? He's a raven. He's found it. And he's gorging himself on a carcass. And then you and I go to the same book and we lift out of the same something, something that forecasts and foreshadows the resurrection of our Saviour. Does. And that's one of the ways in which we're going to be sorted out. The word which I have given you and spoken to you, the same shall judge you in the last day. Your attitude to it. Well now, he sent it out again and the dove returned no more. Now, will you notice another date? Verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year, first month, first day of the month, it can't be much more insistent, can it? The moment the 600 was passed, 
the moment you get to the first day of the first month of the 7,000 years, the 700 years, you're out. Do you mean to tell me that God didn't know what he was doing when he made six days and seven day rest? And there's the 6,000 years running to their end and the 7,000 yet to come. Oh, it's all there, isn't it? Waiting for you to see it. And it came to pass in that very first day, the waters are dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And then they come out, and God makes a covenant with them. Will you look at chapter 9, because our time is fast going. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish. That was said to Adam and Eve. They were put in here to start a filling, a filling. And it all went west. Now as another man comes, and he's told exactly the same thing, replenish. So it's going on. Here's the second filling against the evil attack. Now instead of saying, and I will give you dominion over the cattle and the beast and so on, as Adam had, there's no idea that when Adam was given dominion, that they were fierce and antagonistic. But now, a little change has come. It's the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the, of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Do you remember in Peter? As natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's what's happened to God's creation. That's what man's doing. You know, when you see that man going out with his fishing rod over his shoulder or his gun on his shoulder, oh, you say, he's a sportsman, isn't he? He's, been, he's giving a picture for angels and men that man has lost his dominion. Adam didn't have to go out with a fishing rod or go out with a gun. And our Saviour, when he was here, he said to Peter, take up the first fish that comes and open its mouth, there's your tax paid. He said, when you bring me something to ride on in Jerusalem, bring me an animal that on which no man has ever sat. And it won't be a bucking bronco with me, it'll be as gentle as a lamb. That's the last Adam showing his power. But you see, it's modified now. And then there's another thing that's modified. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. That's a change. Food was changed because the nature of man was in some measure changed and the earth itself was changed. And you know that if this flood was brought about by a spiritual invasion, do you know that if you were wishing to be an adept in spiritualism, you would be obliged to be a vegetarian? You could not be an adept in spiritualism and have a meat diet. So that although you'd have to agree that meat diet makes you gross, God says, I'd rather have you gross than be always vulnerable to spiritual attack. There's, there's wisdom in all this. So that when the doctrine of demons come in the yet future, they're going to command to abstain from meats which God hath set apart and said they're for you. So you may make a base feast of yourself and eat everything that's going simply because it says so. But you're under no obligation in the sense that some have to avoid things 
agree that it's a dreadful thought that every time a person sits down and has a bacon and egg for breakfast, it means that somebody has had to do an awful job of slitting the throat of another pig. I think it would be good for every one of us if we were compelled by law once to do it ourselves. We know that we live day by day by the shedding of blood. And yet not of these fantastic people who won't tolerate the gospel because that tells you that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So that's impressed here. And then it says something which I think is a word I've been waiting to hear by any member of parliament or any leader writer in any newspaper. Now I only see one paper so possibly I'm misjudging. And I haven't read all that the members of Parliament have said on this question of capital punishment. But up to the moment, I've never seen it in print. Here it is, Genesis 9, 5. And surely your blood of your lines will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, and this is the reason for in the image of God, made he man. That has never been rescinded. The covenant made with Noah started afresh for all mankind. There are no Jews here. They're not here yet. That's never been rescinded. And whatever feelings we may have about it, that's what God said was the new law that came in because of the violence that had already filled the earth. So if we're going to be wiser than God, we shall only shift the balance over to another side and possibly wake up and discover that he knew best. Well now, would you look at this chart and see what I've tried to bring before you? Let's look at each one of these items before we close down. Adam is one column and Noah heads the other. Now, we've already indicated that there was a flood back behind um, Adam. That Genesis, which looks like 12, should be Genesis 1, verse 2. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And there's the flood in the days of Noah, and Christ has testified to it in Matthew 24. And then we have the emphasis upon the dry land in both places. And we have the olive leaf which came back to show that the dry land was now appearing. In both places we have the living creatures. And as far as, yes, I'll look right the way down this to the subject we were considering last time, the cherubim. Now, Noah painted his ark all over black pitch. He didn't decorate it with cherubim. Do you know why? Stop for a minute. He got the lot, hadn't he? Who wants to paint cherubim on the ark when he's got them all? Man and lion and ox and eagle. There's your cherubim all going in. In the Garden of Eden, the one man, the one lion, the one ox, the eagle, said to Adam, there's your dominion. It'll come back to you in God's good time. And when they all went into the ark, Noah didn't say, let's spend all our time dabbing a stencil all over with cherubim. He said, don't worry, we've got them all. Man, lion, ox, eagle. So they're there. When we come back again. Both are said to bring forth and to multiply. In this case, food is specified in the Garden of Eden, every herb. Or would some clever person said, yeah, every herb. Supposing they had a bit of deadly nightshade. 
say, will you in the Garden of Eden, friends? No. Well, there wouldn't be any deadly nightshade in the Garden of Eden. That's waiting outside. All right, carry on. Every herb that grew in the Garden of Eden was there. But now, you see, every moving thing is included. A flesh die. And then we get the emphasis on the seventh day rest. And all the dates except one in, Gen- in Genesis' record of the flood all turned out to be Sabbath days. All impinging on that Sabbath day rest. And Noah's name means rest. And then Adam had three sons. Or he had more sons than that, and daughters. But the ones that matter, that, that carry the story on, is all we can go on. Three sons. And one of them, Cain, came under a curse. And Noah had three sons. And one of them, Canaan, came under a curse. Is that accidental? Looks as though it's in time flies, doesn't it? In the days at the beginning, vengeance was not allowed. Anyone touching Cain contradicted the word of God. God said, I will deal with him. At the beginning of the race, these things had to be dealt with one way. But by the time the race had gone so far, and all these people had been so violent and wicked, God brought in the new law, and man had to take some measure with regard to this question of punishment. So execution is commanded. And we often read, especially if you read a novel, of the brand of Cain. And the implication is that Cain was walking about with a brand on his forehead, telling everybody he was a branded man. But God said, I will set a mark for Cain, so that nobody will destroy him. It wasn't to brand him as a murderer, it was to protect him, that nobody should take Cain's life. God says, I see to that. I set a mark for Cain. And the same word, the Hebrew word, off, is used, I will put a mark, I will put a sign, I will put a pledge in the heavens, the bow. And when I look at that, I will remember my covenant that never again will the earth be destroyed with a flood. Some of you may think you're getting near it when you're looking at your burst pipes, but although it's a bit of a nuisance at the time, God still remembers it won't happen. And then we have God planted a garden. And when Noah comes out, he plants a vineyard. Right? Are you going to say he was wrong to do that? And if you plant a vineyard, I suppose it would be reasonable to drink the wine, wouldn't it? And Noah was 600 years old, don't forget. And Noah was a righteous man. So I should imagine that he'd drunk the wine in the vineyards before, and rightly so. Well, what was wrong this time? The earth had been saturated with water. The temperature had changed. Things had happened. And for the first time in human knowledge, wine fermented. And the devil said, Good! Here's something I can use. And he does and has ever since. Then in both places, notice the repetition of a strange thing. In the Garden of Eden, they were naked. And then they were ashamed all repeated over again that Noah was naked. And it's a veiled story. Those who accuse the Bible of being a book that ought not to be read should remember the way in which it veils things. On the surface, all that you read is that the son of Noah, Ham, was a little bit disrespectful because his father was lying there drunk. But when Noah waked up, He cursed a child that was not yet born. He said, Cursed be Canaan. 
And Ham was the father of Canaan. It leaves you to guess who was the mother. And that took place when they were drunk, you see. That's the way Satan can sow his seed in the earth again. And he's used it ever since, any amount of times. Well then we get, in the garden, the fruit tree and the fig leaf being used, we get the wine and the vine in the days of Noah. We get the cherubim, but man and beast in the ark. We get the serpent beguiling Eve and the sons of God and the daughters of men. And then it sums up all the days of Adam were 930. All the days of Noah were 950. Don't you feel there's enough there in those two columns to justify the teaching that Noah is set before us as a specific type of the second Adam who comes out into a new fresh world and starts again. Only alas, Noah was like Adam. He was a poor, frail type. And he failed. Although the type may fail, the purpose is there and the reality will eventually be achieved. Now, would you believe it? I've got all those notes and I've never looked at them yet and there's stuff there that we haven't been able to introduce. I think we'll give it best, shall we, and realise we've got a book here that'll beat us all the time. May the Lord bless the testimony to his wondrous word.